everyone and welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you for listening to us today. How are you doing today, Sarah? Good, because it's episode 250. Yeah! <laughs> wow, that's a lot of episodes of this podcast we've made. Yes, and that is not counting the um like episode B. Sure. Episodes. Yeah, not counting like slotted movies, not counting the bonus episodes or the appeals that we've gotten. Yeah, so we we probably actually passed 250 like some time ago. This is the actual 250 episode, and I just want to say a great big Thank you, Creatures of the Night, for listening to us. Yeah, yeah. Um, thank you so much for supporting this strange little show that mm-hmm. we do. Um, and these strange little people who do them. <laughs> yes, exactly. One thing that I'm really happy about with Scream Scene is that it's the show I wanted to make. Yeah. Like... That's why we made it. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, there are, you know, a lot of podcasts about people watching movies. Yeah. Um, even a lot of like horror movie podcasts, even a lot of like horror movie ranking podcasts. But, you know, I I wanted to do this show in a specific way with a specific kind of focus. And I'm really glad that other people found that interesting. <laughs> You know, we do this podcast because we have fun together doing it. Uh, So it's kind of a a nice little bonus or cherry on top that other people like listening to it too. So thank you, Creatures of the Night, for being here with us. Absolutely. It means so much every time we hear someone tell us about, you know, how much they enjoy the show or like how much they listen to it. It's always great to hear from you guys. Yeah. If you want to get in touch, you can head over to Twitter and tweet at us at underscore scream scene. Or you can also just send us an email, screamscenepodcast at gmail.com. That's right. But without further ado, what are we watching today, Ben? Well, Sarah, today we are watching The Blob from 1958, directed by Irvin Yeworth Jr. Okay, my notes say that it's also possibly directed by Russell Doughton. Yeah, so Russell Doughton was an associate producer on the film. Um, he was in charge of the Valley Forge Films production company that was used to make the film. And so I don't really know why he would like get lumped in as an uncredited director unless like people have recollections of him directing scenes at times or doing second unit work or whatever. Like, Yeah, maybe Irvin was like sick one day. Yeah, it's a low budget production and sometimes people just like pitch in on these kinds of things. This is a low budget picture? Yes. I, so I just assumed that it was like not low budget um, because it's all color. Mm. Um, And I think also because it's all color, I often think of this movie as being a 1960s movie. Oh, sure. Which obviously it is not. Yeah, the color is certainly something that plays a big role in the visual impact of this movie. I know that seems like an obvious thing to say, but... (laughs) Yeah, uh, this was a low-budget picture, for sure. 
Irvin Yeworth is the person who's credited as the director of the movie. Okay. Um, we've talked about Yeworth. We've talked about Dotton. The actual like primary creative force in the production of this movie is its producer, uh, Jack H. Harris. And he was born on November 28th, 1918 in Philadelphia. He was the son of Eastern European Jews. Um, and he got his start in showbiz early at the age of six in vaudeville. Um, but as he aged out of Kitty Reviews, he got other jobs as a teen as a theater usher and worked his way up to be a theater manager and then like a publicity man for motion picture theaters. And then finally he became a film distributor of like indie titles and stuff like that, right? Like Poverty Row stuff. Yeah. It was Harris who had picked up John Parker's indie nightmare dementia and re-edited it with narration from Ed McMahon and released it in 1957 as Daughter of Horror, where it got much wider distribution than it had as Dementia in 1955. Um, you can hear more about that in our episode on Dementia. Uh, but yeah, just just priming your brain to remember that Harris released Daughter of Horror in 1957. Okay. Um, that being said, Harris was growing very dissatisfied with like the cheap black and white movies he was distributing and he had that you know i can make a better movie than this thought to himself <laughs> and decided to produce a sci-fi horror film of the kind that were you know common in the b-movie theaters and do it in color and do it right you know and, and make a good one okay. um, he made the decision to like target uh teens as his audience um with teen lead characters you know because as a distributor he knew that like teens were the ones going to see these movies so let's have like teen main characters and have a story that's about like how the teens can't get help from the adults in solving the problem with the monsters so let's like have them solve it you know we have to go take care of it ourselves because the adults won't believe us that kind of thing yeah that's been a trend we've identified in the past several movies uh throughout the late 50s yeah the biggest difference between harris and like aip's movies uh with like a teen focus is that like harris he's a very genuine seeming guy like very sincere okay. like his teens are very like sincere good-hearted kids um his movies don't have the kind of like hip snarky attitude that like aip movies seem oh, to have oh okay so they're um the scooby-doo gang yeah yeah okay so in coming up with a story idea for this sci-fi horror film, um, Harris credited uh, his friend, like just his his buddy, Irving Milgate, um, who told Harris about an incident in 1950 of, um, well, something to do with star jelly, which I, I had not heard of this incident. Mm -hmm. I'd also never heard of star jelly before now. Um, Sarah... What is star jelly? Uh, well, no one really knows. <laughs> <laughs> Off to a great start. Star jelly is like a, a white, opaque to translucent goo that seemingly randomly appears worldwide in quantities from a tablespoon per glob to several cups. Okay, gross. <laughs> The name Star Jelly comes from its, like, myth of coming from celestial bodies or meteors as they burn up in the atmosphere 
some uh, names for it include like Starbot or uh, Moon Poo, <laughs> translated, of course. Its first documented description comes from a 14th century medical journal where they're theorizing about possible uses for star jelly. But it typically will appear in the morning, usually if it's particularly dewy, and it disappears by high noon because it like evaporates. So we don't know where it's from. So it could be from meteors. Um. Well, so the scientific analysis of star jelly is inconclusive about what it is. Uh-huh. But I feel like it's pretty safe to say it's not from meteors because all of that stuff burns up mm-hmm. in the atmosphere. Um, if anything does fall, they are hard rocks. In some of the sizes of that has been gathered um there would be something about it that people would be able to tell that this is not terrestrial right like there'd be a crater or something yeah yeah so part of why it gets its star association is because it does appear like in the morning so there's the idea that it appears after there's been like a a meteor shower or -hmm. something but there are other times where it just like seems to like seep from the earth itself okay so it's inconclusive but some leading theories range from it being a type of animal sperm to amphibian goo that has been unable to be digested by birds or something else eating frogs or toads there's also theories that it's a type of algae or slime mold it's so weird that we don't know what this thing is yeah. in the year 2022. Yeah, we, we still don't know. Mm. Some of the theories around it being like related to frogs is that it is um, frog ovum. Okay. Which is um, the goo that holds eggs together. Sure. Uh, that gets lost um, when that frog gets like attacked by a predator. You know, it gets like slashed open and then it's egg goo falls out or it gets like shot out as like a protective measure to protect the eggs even as like that frog gets eaten okay but again like this is only based on circumstantial things of like it happens to be found near eggs sometimes huh so no one knows and it appears worldwide and still okay so (laughs) what's the connection between okay so i i get that like it's a goo that like the folklore around it is that it comes out of meteors from outer space. So I, yeah. I, I can walk from that to the blob pretty easy, but like what specific thing happened to like put it in the mind of Irving Milgate? So on the night of September 26th, 1950 in Philadelphia, uh, there were two cops doing their rounds, like, driving around and they were passing the philadelphia gasworks and they happened to see what looked like a parachute falling to the ground from the sky uh so they call in backup and then go in to investigate and they find not a parachute but a translucent slightly purple goo that dissolves when touched or picked up it's about two meters in length and 30 centimeters high, or I guess depth, and it's light enough that it's not, like, crushing the grass underneath. Um, And, you know, they try to pick it up, and it, like, 
dissolves in their hands. It's slightly sticky where it was. And over the next half hour, the entire thing kind of evaporates. Huh. They do call in FBI and government officials, um, but the case remains unsolved. Sure. Okay. So a man's worth of <laughs> purple goo that dissolved. Yeah. Um, news reported that it was like, their headlines were quite fun. They were like, flying saucer just dissolves. <laughs> There wasn't really anything beyond that that could be investigated. So it's kind of just chalked up to being star jelly because we also don't know what the fuck that is. Sure. Now, if Creatures of the Night cast their minds back to episode 154 on 1951's Thing from Another World. Okay. In this time frame of like 1950, there were a lot of supposed UFO sightings, um, all of which started with pilot Kenneth Arnold sighting some UFOs in 1947 in Washington state. Later in 1947, we have the Roswell UFO incident. In 1948, we had Captain Thomas Mantell encounter UFOs reportedly. So UFO theories are coinciding with like Cold War paranoia, government secrecy, and like government funded R&D efforts in this time frame. Um, so that's why they're kind of like thinking UFO or something extraterrestrial. But again, it remains unsolved. Um, now, my understanding is that the makers of the blob never confirmed nor denied the Philadelphia Star Jelly incident as inspiration. Because one theory I saw online suggested this connection came from uh, a popular radio host at the time named Frank Edwards. Are you familiar with that name? No. Okay, so he hosted a radio show called Stranger Than Science during the 40s and 50s and eventually adapted sort of those stories into a book in 1964. Now, he's really well known for embellishing these stories and a lot of what he embellished in the Philadelphia Star Jelly in this book adaptation called Stranger Than Science seemed to unintentionally link to the plot of the blob, hmm. which led to people kind of developing this, um, I guess you would call it apocrypha, around the blob being tied to this star jelly incident. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's certainly, like, possible. Um, I mean, this happened in Philadelphia. Yeah. Yeah, which is, like, where Harris was from. It is, like, you know, one of those things where... Someone goes like, hey, remember that weird thing from a few years back? Why don't you make your movie about that? Like, that's <laughs> kind of the the vibe that I get with it, the idea coming from Irving Milgate. But, like, Irving Milgate was just, like, a friend of Harris's who has no other, like, he's not a writer. He <laughs> has no other movie credits. Like, it's just he had the story idea is all he's really credited with. Okay. Maybe uh, Milgate got the idea, just remembered some newspaper clippings from you know, the start of the decade, you know, had a good memory for weird stuff like that. Hard to say. <laughs> um, it's a very slight basis. Yeah, that's build, almost just like the inciting incident. Right, to build a script out of. Um, now, we've seen blob-like monsters before, um, particularly in like like the Hammer sci-fi movies. Yeah, so X the Unknown from 1956. We covered that in episode 195. Um, in that case, it's a blob from beneath the Earth's surface okay. um, coming 
to in search of like atomic energy or radiation and then like eats that atomic stuff and then you know it's not like purposefully seeking out people to eat another possible source material for the film could have come from the many short stories that are out there um particularly joseph payne brennan who happened to sue the creators of the blob with the allegation that they stole the idea from his 1953 short story titled Slime. Okay. I don't know if there's any credence to this, but let me tell you a little bit about Brennan. Sure, yeah, I've never heard of him. That's a surprise to me, um, because he, if you were alive at the same time as him, you would probably run in similar, like, interest circles. Okay, okay. He was born in 1918 to Irish immigrants in Connecticut, and he um, quickly developed a love of literature and New England. He grew up reading Edgar Allan Poe, H.P. Lovecraft, etc., while working in acquisitions at Yale University's Sterling Memorial Library. He tried his hand at writing, particularly in the 1940s, though he did have a brief interruption of World War II. Uh, he served for three years, including one year with General Patton's Third Army. Okay, cool. Wild, wild connection. So once he headed back home in 1946, he started writing, beginning with Westerns, and then moved to horror, getting published in Weird Tales and elsewhere. Also in the 1940s, he kind of developed like almost like some scholarship as a compiler of Lovecraft's work. Oh, okay, sure. And he is known for the occult detective slash psychic investigator series following Lucius Luffing. Okay. Into the 70s and 80s, he would continue writing horror and macabre tales, greatly influencing Stephen King, particularly with all of his stories set in New England. Sure. And he died in 1990. Okay. Yeah. I've never heard of this guy. Okay. Um, So the 1953 short story Slime was the cover story for Weird Tales, and it features an ancient slime life form being blown from the deep sea to America because of an underwater volcano eruption. And this slime being begins to, like, start eating people and engulfs them like an amoeba. Now, I believe that... Any inspiration from this short story was never officially recognized, and they settled this dispute out of court. Um, However, Brennan was having his first short story collection published this year, uh, which had slime as kind of its lead story. So I'm not sure if this was perhaps a way to drum up some marketing sure some publicity or something right like you know or or just some like jealousy about like a similar idea becoming like big in public consciousness and overshadowing like his thing yeah yeah so i'm not i'm not sure but it's interesting that we've now had back-to-back movies where an author has been like hey wait a minute right and there hasn't actually been any relation yeah yeah it it's interesting interesting yeah We'll, uh, we'll have to see. I know that, like, you know, the blob in the movie comes from space. Yeah, and the thing about slime is that it's specifically ancient slime life being brought to the surface. Yeah, and it's, like, from the ocean because, like, Lovecraftian yeah, stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. 
So uh, with this star jelly idea in hand, <laughs> um, Harris had to find someone to actually write the script. So he turned to Kate Phillips, an East Coast-based television writer who had once been an actress under the name Kay Lineker until she married Howard Phillips, an NBC television executive. That's pretty cool. We don't usually get a lady writer. Yeah, yeah. So he's got a script and he's got, you know, his distribution business, but Harris had never like produced a movie before. He has Mm -hmm. no access to like a studio, to cameras, to anything. So in order to actually get the film made, he went to Valley Forge Films in Pennsylvania, uh, which was run by Russell Doughton. And Valley Forge Films was a Christian film group that made religious movies for church groups or for evangelists like Billy Graham. Fascinating. So Harris managed to convince them that backing a film in a proven profitable genre like sci-fi horror would earn them more money in order to make more Bible films. The same strategy employed by Ed Wood to produce Plan 9 from Outer Space. Yeah, I was going to say this sounds very familiar. Yeah. So this is how we got director Irving Yeaworth Jr. Uh, involved in this, because he was a director for Valley Forge Films. Uh, he was 32 years old at the time of making this movie. He had been born in Berlin in 1926, and his only previous feature film to this was 1956's The Flaming Teen Age, uh, which was <laughs> a like moral panic, juvenile delinquency exploitation film amazing if this is starring teens i can see why they chose him then but it's still like wild yeah other than that movie his only filmmaking experience was in the making of these like christian church movies and television specials he would make a few more movies with harris after the blob um i think one of them's called like the 4d man and like there's a few others um but in the 1970s he left filmmaking to run tours of israel and jordan for american christians and then from there he got into theme park design wild so the movie script was entitled the molten meteor and the monster is only referred to as the mass in the script during filming it was decided like the movie needed a better title so they kind of like opened it up to everyone during film of the movie like you know here's the suggestion jar for like titles basically the title the glob was suggested but there was some uncertainty about the title due to the fact that a book of the same name had been released uh by cartoonist walt kelly earlier in the decade and harris and company didn't understand that you can't copyright a title they would have been totally fine to put out a movie called the glob when there was like an unrelated children's book of the same name uh but they didn't know that they were like oh shit okay we have to change it and so um kate phillips was the one who suggested the blob instead and harris decided that the very silly sounding title might get the movie the same kind of like public awareness bump that I was a teenage werewolf had gotten from being like part of the jokes of like comics on late night TV and stuff. Yeah. Did that happen? Yes. Okay, cool. (laughs) So he, he knows his stuff. Yeah. Um, the movie was shot in small town, Pennsylvania, uh, in the towns of Valley Forge, Chester Springs, 
Downington, Phoenixville, and Royersford. Um, Downington actually gets like named in the movie and the cop cars in the movie say Downington like police department. So I guess technically we're set in Downington, but there are like places in the movie where it's like, well, that place is in Phoenixville and this place is down in Royersford or whatever. Um, They're all just kind of amalgamated into one town. Now it was through Irvin Yeworth that Harris found the film's star, 27 year old Terrence Stephen McQueen. Uh, credited as Stephen McQueen uh, for this film. Not yet the king of cool movie star he would become, Steve McQueen. Yeah. So does this director know him because young Steve McQueen was in Bible movies? So young Steve McQueen's wife, Nellie Adams, was in Bible movies. Okay. Um, Yeworth actually (laughs) thought that McQueen was a huge pain in the ass. He called him an opinionated jerk and banned him from the set, uh, after a few weeks. But Harris thought that McQueen was perfect for the lead role in the blob, despite being, you know, about 10 years older than his character. That's never stopped Hollywood before, Ben. Mm -hmm. So Steve McQueen, his movie stardom comes really like after the blob yeah so i'm not gonna go into that yeah uh too much listener if you're unaware of steve mcqueen just like he was a big movie star um he was called the king of cool um he was like just a big deal in the 1960s um but but we're not in the 1960s. No. Um, and this is one of his first, this is actually his first starring role in anything. Amazing. So, but he, so that means that he was in like bit parts. Yes. Then. So he was like familiar with being an actor. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, in fact, his, his life story up to this point is um, quite something. Okay. Uh, so Steve McQueen was born in 1930 and he was the son of a stunt pilot for a circus and an alcoholic. Because of this, um, he was not raised by his parents because his dad flew off to be a stunt pilot with the circus and his mother had a drinking problem. So she gave him to his maternal grandparents. They were going to raise him and then the depression happened and his maternal grandparents lost their house and they had to move in with their brother, like his great aunt and uncle on their farm. And McQueen was basically raised by his great uncle on this farm. Uh, But then his mother married to a guy and she wanted McQueen to try living with them. So he tried to live with her and his stepfather, but his stepfather was abusive um, towards her and towards McQueen. And so there was a period in McQueen's life when he was like between 12 and 14, where he like kind of would run away from home, become a petty criminal uh, join up like in gangs and stuff and steal hubcaps off cars and things. And then they would like send him back to his mom. His mom would send him back to like his great uncle on the farm. The farm would send him back to his mom. He'd run away from home again after his dad beat him up. Like there was the, kind of this cycle for a couple of years. And yeah, he, he ended up getting into like several violent incidents, um, fighting with his stepfather, fighting with police, Um, getting thrown in juvie, that kind of thing. So eventually his mom um, had him declared incorrigible, um, which basically means cannot be raised. Um, And so he was sent by court order to the California Junior Boys Republic, 
which was a uh, essentially like a boarding school for troubled adolescents. Okay. Um, the word Republican there threw me off. Yeah. I was like, right. Is this like Lord of the Flies? Right. Like- yeah. Um, so he stayed there uh, from age 14 to age 16. And um, I guess he like became like a role model to the other kids. And he kind of like matured. During, he became like a leader. He was like on the student council of the Boys Republic. Amazing. So he became a nerd. No. <laughs> no, he just became like a, a, a very charismatic leader. Okay. Um, and actually, after he became an actor, um, he became quite famous for like in the contracts for his movies once he was a star um, of like insisting that he like be paid partially in like bulk amounts of items like jeans and razors and pencils. And people were like, this is so weird. And it turned out he'd been sending this stuff back to the boys Republic. Oh, Um, and he would like go back there and visit and like hang out with the kids and stuff and like donate, you know, these portions of his salary to them. That's cool. Yeah. Um, anyways, uh, so he gets out of the boys Republic at age 16. Um, he goes to try living with his mom again. She's living in Queens by this point. Um, he decides nuts to that and signs up with the merchant Marine. And then they sail to the Dominican Republic. He arrives in the Dominican Republic and he decides to abandon ship. (laughs) So he jumps, uh, and abandons his post. The boat leaves. He gets a job at a brothel in the Dominican Republic. Um, and then from there, he has to like work odd jobs, working his way back north, eventually arriving in Texas, where he was arrested for vagrancy and served in a chain gang for 30 days. Um, from there, once he got out of that, he enlisted in the U.S. Marine Corps in 1947. The stuff with the merchant Marine never came up like yeah, who, who was that guy? Um, <laughs> listen, that was Steven. Yeah, I'm Steve. Right. <laughs> that was, listen, that was when I was 16. I was young and foolish. I'm 18 now. I'm a real adult now. So um, he was frequently reprimanded while he was serving in the U.S. Marine Corps. Um, he had a real hard time with things like discipline and following orders. Particularly what he was reprimanded for was multiple unauthorized absences to go see his girlfriend. But he served in the Marine Corps until 1950, uh, learning discipline and eventually like working his way up the ranks. He saved the lives of five fellow uh, officers during an Arctic training mission gone wrong. And from there, he was assigned as part of the honor guard aboard President Truman's presidential yacht. Wild. Yeah. So in 1952, um, with money from the GI Bill, because he's, you know, yeah served um mcqueen began studying acting in new york so he gets out of the marine corps and he's like i'm gonna be an actor and takes his gi bill money and goes and invests in like acting lessons okay um he performed in many minor roles in plays uh, all throughout new york like off broadway and got into racing motorcycles on the weekends as a hobby uh so he became like a like in street races i have to yeah, be clear yeah. like like illegal street motorcycle racing At this point in his career, he had only appeared in two films in like minor roles. He's still out on the East Coast. Uh, The Blob would be his first starring role. And um, that would get him seen by producers out West in Hollywood, which would lead to him getting a guest role as a bounty hunter named Josh Randall on a Western TV show called Trackdown. And 
that episode was so successful that he came back to do like another episode as that character. And that was so well received that he got a spinoff and that spinoff became his breakout role. Like the thing that made Steve McQueen famous uh, in terms of like being Steve McQueen, as opposed to like Stephen McQueen, the star of the blob uh, was this TV show wanted dead or alive um, where he played an anti-hero. He played a a bounty hunter anti-hero in this 1958 to 61 TV show cool exactly uh exactly yeah that was his whole deal yeah um yeah and then from there he became one of the biggest movie stars in Hollywood so Harris offered McQueen a contract to star in the blob um the contract terms were he could either take 2,500 bucks or he could have 10% of the film's profits and McQueen was convinced that this movie would never make money and he needed to pay rent now. Yeah. So he took the 2,500 bucks. Yeah. Because he's, you know, living in New York off of illegal motorcycle street racing. So. Yeah. And you said he's like 27, 27. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Where I was at that point in my life, I just needed money to pay rent too. Um, having signed McQueen, uh, Harris actually signed him to a three picture deal, but you may remember Yeworth had already met McQueen and hated him and had him banned from like this other Christian movie set. Right. So McQueen, like the thing is like McQueen was a little shit, a little shit. Right. He clashed so much with Yeworth and the crew. Like it was, it was a problem. Um, McQueen smoked like a chimney um, but his character in the movie doesn't smoke because his character is a clean-cut good old-fashioned american teen boy yeah. who doesn't smoke um there's actually one shot in the movie where you can see he's standing and talking outside somewhere and there's smoke rising from behind him because he's just holding his cigarette behind his back amazing so with all these clashes um Harris made the decision when it came time to make like the follow-ups to the blob, like the 4d man, um, that he would rather keep the director and crew that he had and let McQueen out of the contract rather than like keep McQueen and try to find a new director and crew makes total sense. But in hindsight, Harris did regret that decision, not making two more movies with Steve McQueen. So, uh, McQueen's co-star in this movie she was hired two days before filming started. Like she had her audition and hey, here's the part and here you go. This was her first movie. Uh, her name was Anita Corso uh, and she was 24 years old. She would go on to be the main love interest on the Andy Griffith show in the 1960s. The other main co-star of the film is, of course, the blob itself, mm-hmm. uh, which was a silicone concoction um, that still exists today. It has never dried out. Um, oh dear. Yeah. It, the chemicals, it must smell so bad. Yeah. It's, um, silicone combined with red food coloring, um, which you'll see in the movie, red food dye was actually added to it as the story went on, as it eats more and more people. Amazing. Yeah. It gets more and more red. Mm-hmm. Many of the film's special effects were accomplished by art director Burt Sloan using like miniatures and gravity, essentially like tricks where, you know, you would make a miniature, say of a building and you would like shoot it so that actually the camera's looking up at the ceiling 
Yeah. And you mount the miniature and then you just sort of drop the blob on it and it would look like the blob was like oozing over the buildings, but it's just sort of falling down. Yeah. Yeah. Stuff like that. The film was budgeted at $240,000 and it was shot in three weeks and Yeworth brought it in for $120,000. Damn, no wonder Harris wanted to keep director and crew. <laughs> yeah, so $120,000 is what this movie was shot for. Holy shit. Which I mean, when you're outside of like Hollywood in like small town Pennsylvania, probably taking advantage of a bunch of small town yokels, getting a bunch of like, like there's a bunch of teens in this movie who were just teens who lived in the towns. Sure. Right? Now, Harris originally intended to distribute the movie himself, right? Yeah. Makes, makes sense. sense. Um, but he was able to sell it to Paramount because they offered to buy it from him for $300,000. Holy fuck. And he shot it for one twenty. Yeah. Um, so they picked it up to distribute the film nationally on a double bill, which is even better because like Harris's distribution network was all like East Coast, basically. Yeah. Um, Paramount decided to replace the dramatic horror music that composer Ralph Carmichael had intended to go over the film's opening credits with a goofy novelty song called Beware of the Blob uh, in order to signal that the movie was meant as campy fun, uh, despite the fact that the movie's tone is actually otherwise like quite serious. Yeah. Beware of the blob, it creeps and leaps and glides and slides across the floor right through the door. Beware of the Blob was written by 1960s hit songwriter Burt Bacharach, uh, who wrote such songs as What the World Needs Now is Love. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. What's New Pussycat, Alfie, Casino Royale. The Look of Love, Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head. Raindrops are falling on and just like the guy whose feet are too big for his bed, nothing seems to fit, etc. The tone of those songs do not a horror movie make. And the song was performed by The Five Blobs, which was um, actually just singer Bernie Knee overdubbing himself four times. Jeez Louise. Beware the Blob would rise to number 33 on the Billboard charts. Not bad. Yeah, uh, it was a hit, and it served as a significant part of the film's marketing campaign. I still disagree with this decision. <laughs> it's one of the things people remember the most about this movie. All right. Paramount released the Blob on September 12, 1958, originally as the B picture to I Married a Monster from Outer Space. Okay. But it quickly became clear that the blob was the main attraction, that that is what was getting people into theaters. So Paramount switched it and made it the A picture. And so that's why we're watching The Blob this week for episode 250. We'll be watching I Married a Monster from Outer Space next week for episode 251. The Blob was a huge hit. It grossed $4 million. Oh my God. Yeah. How much is 10% of that? $400,000. Oh, oh, Stevie. Um, oh, Stevie. It only received mixed reviews from critics. <laughs> uh, 
A sequel, Beware the Blob, was produced in 1972 as like a camp horror comedy. Um, And then there was an acclaimed remake of The Blob in 1988. That same year, The Blob was added to the Criterion Collection, where it is spine number 91. Oh. Made it into the Criterion Collection in the first hundred. Amazing. Thanks to fan tourism, many of the small businesses in the towns in the movie, such as the Downington Diner and the Colonial Theater, are still in business. Phoenixville, Pennsylvania, where the Colonial Theater is located, holds Blobfest every summer, uh, which involves um, personal appearances by the Blob itself. Um, Like the actual... Yeah, stored, sealed in a five-gallon pail. Uh, and attend- it's just like, here's Odo, here to see everyone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and attendees to Blobfest get to reenact the famous scene in the movie of the crowd running in terror out from the theater. And so as you might expect, uh, today, if you want to watch The Blob along with us, you can do so on Blu-ray from the Criterion Collection or streaming on the Criterion Channel. Well, folks, I am mighty excited for this movie. Mighty excited. If you would like to watch along with us, hopefully you can find a copy. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss The Blob from 1958, directed by Irvin Yeworth Jr. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Blob from 1958, directed by Irvin Yeworth Jr. Ben, you have seen this before. Yeah, I mean, not since we started the podcast. Also, like, not since I really started, like, paying attention to film in a very, like, specific, like, you know, cineast kind of way. When was the last time you watched this? Uh, Like, I owned it on VHS. Um, like I first saw this as a child, like I was, I was definitely like, like seven or eight the first time I saw this. Okay. And I think I haven't seen it since maybe I was like 12 or 13. Okay. Yeah. I was going to say, cause you've been like a film buff since your teens. Yeah. So that would have been preteen Ben. Yeah. Like I said, I owned it on VHS and like back in those days, um, you only owned like so many movies, right? So I did like watch it a bunch as a kid, but I haven't seen it since then. So like we were watching like, you know, the the HD Criterion restoration. So it like looked way better mm-hmm. than I've ever seen it looking. Yeah, very vibrant colors. Very vibrant colors. I think that was the first thing that you noticed right away. Really great lighting throughout. Lots of um, colored edge lighting, which I'm a super huge fan of. Yeah. Um, lots of colorful costumes. Um, it's maybe never like as shadowy as you'd perhaps want. Um, it's very like well lit throughout, I would say. But they do a neat thing. I feel like we're getting ahead of ourselves, but they do a neat thing where, yes, it's well lit, but 
they're on black backdrops. Yeah. So it still feels dark and enclosed. Yeah. It always feels like nighttime. Yeah. Um, at least. Yeah. It's always visually interesting. Um, so yeah, there was just like a lot of stuff that I noticed because I was paying attention to it more than I did when I was a child. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. What did you think? This is your first time seeing this movie. Yes. Um, I, I will say I have seen the blob leaving the theater bit because it's pretty famous mm-hmm. sequence or scene. Um, but yeah, first time seeing it, uh, pretty dang good. I was surprised by how charmed I was with the opening song. Yeah, the opening song is great. And it's it's weird because it's like in advance of when you you imagine like camp being like capital C camp being a huge thing part of the popular culture like with the batman yeah like you we sort of i think really associate camp becoming a mainstream art movement with like Andy Warhol in the early 60s yeah um, but yeah this is definitely that kind of vibe a little bit with that opening credits song and just with how colorful everything is yeah, the movie itself plays itself like very seriously, though. Yeah. Um, the movie doesn't really play itself for laughs. Um, Except when it does. Or sh- sure. <laughs> but like, I think what you saw here, and I mentioned this in the intro, is the fact that like people were noticing that people went to I Was a Teenage Werewolf kind of like for funsies like like i don't know how to say it like like people were ragging on that movie in like stand-up comedy routines right like and so they tried like they titled this movie the blob because they wanted people to be making jokes about it like it's almost the sort of like sharknado you know kind of thing of its day where it's like we're gonna give this movie like a ridiculous title that people are gonna make jokes about and that's gonna raise the awareness of this movie yeah i don't know if i would call it quite a sharknado But I see what you mean. I think the thing about it is camp going mainstream had a lot to do with major media companies tapping into the idea of going to see something ironically. Like, yeah, the the idea that, you know, maybe people are going to go see these cheap horror movies to laugh at them rather than to scream at them. And maybe we can tap into that. I agree but the reason why i'm not quite sure if the blob is quite at that level is because there are feelings of like genuine like trying to be scary and moments of like where you're laughing isn't necessarily like laughing at the fact that the movie is doing something i think the contrast that you're feeling there is the result of the movie having been made entirely by a production company and then sold to a distributor that had nothing to do with making it and the distributor being the one that's going for the camp uh, marketing versus the people who made it who were making a genuine horror movie. Yeah, that's true. But as always, we are getting ahead of ourselves. So um, let me tell the folks at home how the blog begins and it begins with teens. (laughs) A young Steve. I love when characters are named the same name as their actors. Sure. Um, young Steve and his girlfriend Jane are out at makeout point and they see a meteorite fall. So they drive to go check it out. Um, before they can get to it, though, we cut to a farmer checking it out and discovering that inside this little meteorite that would be maybe, I don't know, 
like a 10 pin bowling ball size. Sure. That there's like goo inside this meteorite and it immediately like goes for the farmer's hand and he flips out, understandably. Um, so he is running around the woods kind of screaming and he rushes out in front of Steve's car. They don't hit him, but he's like, please get me to a doctor. So they grab him and rush him to the local doctor, Dr. Halen. Now, when they get there, the doctor, I'm just going to call him Doc because that's how everyone else refers to him. Doc looks over the old man and sends Steve and Jane to go out to try to find the guy's folks and like what exactly happened because... Uh, the farmer, he's been put under anesthesia because he, he couldn't really speak anyway. He was in so much pain. On the way out, Steve and Jane get into some teen hijinks through street racing, their friends Tony and gang. Uh, I couldn't find their names, but there's, one is like Mooch or yeah, Moochie. Yeah, and there's then like... I don't know who the other guy was. There's three of them. And yeah, yeah one of them is definitely Mooch, and I don't remember the third. <laughs> So Tony and friends and through this street racing, we meet one of our lead police officers that we follow. His name is Lieutenant Dave. <laughs> he has an actual last name, but everyone calls him Dave, it seems. So after that whole hijink situation, um, Steve and Jane drive over to the old man's house along with Tony and friends, and they find the crater and the old man's small dog kind of done with this tony and his friends head over to the movies because they're doing late night horror marathon they're doing a double feature of daughter of horror yeah and bella lugosi <laughs> we don't know what the bella lugosi movie is the marquee just says and bella lugosi there is a poster in the lobby uh for the vampire and the robot which is actually just the Forbidden Planet poster with that title put on it. Which is very fun, especially because that's such an iconic, recognizable poster. Yeah. It's... But it's very colorful, so I can see why they would choose it for that. Mm. Um, while Tony and his friends go off to the movies, Stephen and Jane head back to the doctor's office. Meanwhile, we see that Doc calls in his nurse to help him with figuring out what the heck is going on with this old farmer. And every time he checks on the mass that's on the on the farmer, it keeps growing and taking on more of his body. Um, and the doc explains like, yeah, it's literally dissolving his skin, his body. I'm not sure what this is. So I think we have to amputate the arm. Before they can get to it, though, the whole man is fully dissolved. Then we see that this blob goes for the nurse, attacks her, and then attacks the doc. Jane and Stephen arrive just in time to see the doc attacked through the window. Um, in that whole uh, horrific scene, the dog gets loose, and Jane and Steve head to the police station to basically get the police involved because the doc is dead. Um, at the police station, uh, they are talking to Lieutenant Dave and Sergeant Burt. Um, now, Sergeant Burt is set up to basically have it in for the teens, and they give a little bit more of a backstory about him, but I won't get into that right now. But Burt is like, nah, this is just some kind of gag, and Dave's like, yeah, but they said that the doc is dead. We need to go check this out. At the doctor's office, they find no sign of anyone being there just a ransacked office um and possibly some reports of shotgun fire now 
the doc had his neighbor, Mrs. Porter, looking after the house because he was going to be leaving that weekend for a convention. And she comes over and she's like, yeah, that's why the doc isn't here. So the cops don't really believe Jane and Stephen. Um, eventually, these two kids are picked up by their parents at the police station. Because no one's believing them, Jane and Steve basically decide, okay, we need to find this thing, this creature, ourselves. So they sneak out, they grab Tony and pals and their girlfriends from the movie theater, and they start to search the town. Eventually, they corner the blob in the supermarket to try to get people awake and knowing what's going on, because the police still won't believe them, they start their own freedom convoy, <laughs> driving around honking and waking everyone up um, with the police and the firefighters um, coming to the market to be like, it's in here, please believe us. But nothing is there. Then we hear screaming from the movie theater. The blob is loose. As the blob is making its way through the streets and people are running and it's chaos, um, it eventually actually ends up cornering Jane and Stephen in the local diner with Jane's younger brother, Danny, and then like the owner and his wife of the diner. So they end up going down to the basement to try to keep away from the blob. And in the commotion of all of that the diner is also on fire inside and the blob is completely engulfing the entire building and it, it looks like things are in for poor jane and steve dead at a young 17 except the diner owner grabs a fire extinguisher to try to put out the fire and this fire extinguisher is a, a new kind of fire extinguisher that uses co2 and rapidly freezes whatever it touches and they realize that the blob doesn't like the cold. So they manage to get that information outside of the diner. And the whole town rallies together with cops, principals, and teens standing side by side using CO2 fire extinguishers to freeze the blob. Eventually getting Jane and Stephen and Danny, her younger brother, out of the diner and saved. Um, with the blob frozen, Lieutenant Dave arranges for the government to take the frozen blob up to the Arctic to keep it frozen, because there's really no way for us to actually defeat this thing. And hopefully, you know, that the Arctic will never melt and we'll never have to worry about the blob again. <clears throat> and then, yeah, <laughs> and then we get the end and then it morphs into a question mark, which is like... Irvin Yeworth, did you foresee climate change and global warming in 1958? <laughs> I'm just goofing. I mean, you know. Yeah. Climate change scientists did. Uh, they absolutely so <laughs> did. And because I didn't really mention it, the dog does not die. Yeah, they actually go out of their way. Like, it's heavily implied that the dog has been eaten at one point, And we actually do never see it again. But there's like later dialogue where someone has a line where they're like, oh, no, no, don't worry. We saw it running away down the street the other way. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. So we sort of already talked about the visuals, mm -hmm. um, the very vibrant color that's throughout this movie, um, you know, not just with costumes and art direction, but with lighting as well. Um, the blob effects for my money are really well done. I think so, too. Um, I really like that they added more red food coloring 
um, yeah. as it like ate more people. Yeah. And they did a good job of making it appear like it's growing, even though I think you said that it really just stays the same size the whole way through. Yeah, it's it's the same size like prop, prop um, with a lot of tricks. Um, but yeah, they did a really amazing job because they needed to, you know, get something that looked like jelly, right? but that wouldn't stick to everything so that they could do more than one take and like not have it everywhere. And then also have it like be collecting dust and grossness. Oh yeah. But it still needs to kind of have that like globby sort of look where when it flows, it looks like it is sticking to like the floor or the people or whatever. So they did a really good job with that. And they do a really good job of showing like people attacking it like Mm -hmm. there's a moment where the doc is shooting his rifle at it and you see the impact shots Mm -hmm. on it i don't know how they managed to do that but it's really well done yeah um there really wasn't anything like this at the time like you know think in your mind about gross goo in like sci-fi horror movies and it's definitely something that i associate more with like the the 80s Uh, In my head, like, it's just not something that we've seen a lot of. Like, yeah, there was, you know, a blob in um, X the Unknown. Unknown, But, like... That's it. Out of uh, 250 episodes, only one other. Yeah, and, like, we haven't been seeing a lot of even just, like, incidentally in other movies, a kind of, like, use of, like, I don't know, like, goopy, KY jelly kind of, like, grossness, right? Whereas, like, you know, if you think about, like, Alien for instance, where, like, the monster isn't a blob, but, like, the alien, like... Oozes. Oozes everywhere, yeah. (laughs) And we haven't really had oozes as a threat, and they do it really well here. Like, the blob, like, goes under doors and, like... Through vents. Yeah, with a lot of really cool effects. Um, uh, Some of the trick shots that they do are very, very cheap. But they go by fast enough and they're clever and well done enough that honestly, like, they're very effective. Like, the one that I'll just bring up because it's a good example of kind of, like, the rest of them and how they did things Mm -hmm. is, uh, you know, everybody runs out of the theater. It's a very iconic shot. And then we see the blob come out the front of the theater. But what it actually is, is it's the just, like, you know, five-gallon blob prop in front of a, like, hardbacked photo of the theater but it like it works it works really well because you know i think like that shot length is maybe less than five seconds oh yeah exactly it's it's not so much a blink and you miss it but it's enough to have a power it's enough that if you're already swooped up in the movie i think you mean swept swept up (laughs) in the movie um you aren't really looking for like, oh, that's just a photo behind Mm -hmm. the prop there. Like you just see it and it works. Um, You know, similarly, like the shot where it comes oozing out of the projection booth into the theater. And that's just like a cardboard model model, but like they've matched it really well to the shots they've already shown you of that wall. So your brain just kind of goes with it. Right. Um, I think editing is a major point in the movie's favor uh, in this regard, in terms of making, those shots work by keeping them short right i think the editing really helps the pacing as well i will say that there are moments where the teen scenes i guess go on just a bit too long for me i'm like hey can we get back to why we're here Mm. which is to see people get dissolved in front of me like (laughs) um you know i i understand why they have such 
I, I, I understand why we have the emphasis on the teens. But whenever we get John back to like, oh, that's right. The doc wanted me to go check on uh, the farmer's old house. It's like Kate cut. We're immediately there. Right. We don't spend. We've talked about this in past episodes, but we we don't spend the time to watch them driving up the mountain, going through the foliage. Here's the farmer's house. Oh, and here's the crater. Like we cut and they're at the crater. Yeah, for sure. Probably the weakest effect shots in the movie are the ones where the blob is like a matte painting. Uh, which mostly come at like the end when it's yeah. surrounding the diner. Yeah, um, when it's so large and then trying to balance the way that that looks with when we get some animated parts of it. Yeah. Um, that being said, there's some good animation done. Like they drop a um, like a power line on it at one point. Yeah. Oh, uh, which I, is what which which is what sets the diner on fire. Yeah, I forgot that. It's fine. It's fine. Um, Sorry. It's it's what sets the diner on fire. Uh, while the blob is like already surrounding the diner, they drop a power line on it. It does nothing to the blob. But there's like a cool like they do it entirely as an animation because it's the shot of the blob surrounding the diner is a matte painting, and then they like animate the sparks going across it. It was you know yeah pretty cool for a like again for a one hundred and twenty thousand dollar movie. Absolutely. I think it's the thing to remember, right? Yeah. Um, I think the fact that they shot on location for almost everything here um, really helps the movie look like a million bucks because the movie goes all over the place. Like it rarely returns to a location if there isn't a good motivation to do so, right? We don't like continually go back and forth from like the doctor's office to the old man's house for the whole movie, right? Yeah, not for the whole movie. But I will say the thing that really sells when we are on a set is the vibrant lighting yeah. and the black backdrop. Yeah. You don't feel like you're on a set in the same way that it feels like you're on a set in like the climax of Frankenstein, for example. Sure. Yeah, exactly. And the fact that they were on location in all these towns, like, so the houses are real houses. The doctor's office is a real doctor's office. The supermarket's a real supermarket. The mm-hmm. theater's a real theater, right? And this all helps a lot because it means that they don't have to build out sets which means the buildings are all there, which means you can shoot them from any angle, which means that like every time we go to a location, the camera angles are new every time and the shots can incorporate the environment and like foreground elements in interesting ways. Like there's a shot of um, Steve sneaking out of the house and it's like Steve McQueen, like parkouring down the side of his house and there's like tree branches like between the camera and him as if we're like looking through the trees at this. And that's probably because there was an actual tree there, you know, Um, there's just like a lot being done to give the movie a unique atmosphere of like, Hey, it's nighttime, you know, in this small town. Yeah. That's um, something that I I hope kind of came across in the plot synopsis. This happens. So the meteorite falls. It's like, 9 p.m. Yeah. You know, the sun's down, so it's dark. And it takes all the way till morning. Yeah. You know, so it's over a single night. And you really do feel like that time frame is real. Yeah, it feels like nighttime, no matter what, right? Yeah. Um, They don't do any, like, day for night here. Yeah, it's it's cool. I think between the color photography and the shooting on location, the movie feels way more expensive than it is. And, you know, especially with the fact that they clearly drew from like the local population for a lot of the like minor characters and stuff. So many extras 
like just looking at even people running from the theater but there's a lot of like random other characters around like mrs parsons or whoever who is like looking after the doc's office um everyone has their parents uh there's even like a third police officer who i didn't mention yeah speaking of which like that third police officer has also like his own like all the cops have their own backstories yeah the teens have their own backstories the script does a lot of interesting work to establish all of these characters as people in a setting with like relationships and problems, right? Like Dave has a certain relationship with the teens for this reason. And, and Bert has a certain relationship with them for this other reason. And then there's like the third guy who likes to play chess and then like over the radio with someone from another district. Right. And like Steve has like a certain backstory and Jane has a certain backstory and their parents come from these different backgrounds and we know what their parents do. And they have these friends who are a certain way and all of the like, guys in like tony's crew are like unique and like have their own weird sort of idiosyncrasies like everybody here has their own story going on and and the movie has this very specific theme of like the authorities not believing the teens and we got to get the cops to believe us and this conflict between like the cops and the teens and the teens really are like good at heart, but the cops won't believe them because they play pranks on them and stuff. And, you know, it feels like at times this script is basically doing like, Hey, what if an alien monster showed up during rebel without a cause? Yeah. So there's a lot you just said here that I want to kind of respond to. Yeah. Um, so part of the backstories that we get from the cops is, um, they're all veterans, Mm -hmm. whether it's the Korean war or world war two, it's unclear. Bert specifically seemed to have had a hard time in the war, but also apparently a teen lost control of his car and had a car accident killing Bert's wife. Mm -hmm. And that's why Bert has it out for teens. And Mm -hmm. Dave says something along the lines of like, just because a kid killed his wife doesn't mean every 17 year old has it out for him. Yeah. It's not a crime to be be 17. 17. Yeah. And that is so like, wow, that's a lot to just drop in a like offhand sentence here. Wow. But that's how they build out and flesh out these characters. And We've seen in past movies that are cheap where they try to build out these stories and it just ends up like dragging on the movie and also will sometimes feel like extraneous, like just drama for drama's sake. And it's really interesting how the blob manages to make these things relevant. So Bert has a little bit of a character arc, his Military experience comes in when he has to shoot the power line out and he's like has a really good shot. It, it's just really interesting how they managed to bring it all in. And I will say that probably the acting from everyone is also bringing that background in a believable way because this this feels like a very naturalistic kind of acting rather than like, you know, you think Shakespearean acting has a certain style. This felt very naturalistic, particularly with Steve McQueen, because to me, it felt like, yes, he's absolutely doing a rebel without a cause. Jimmy Dean. Yeah. Thing. He's doing his best James Dean impression. And there were times where his naturalistic acting actually felt like it was at odds with everyone else. And specifically Aveta Corso, because he was like, yeah, I don't know. And just kind of like mumbling his way like i don't know 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's like this or maybe it's like that and kind of like stumbling through his lines, whereas everyone else is just like, well, Steve, are you telling the truth? And right. just kind of a little bit not as naturalistic delivery. Yeah. Um, McQueen apparently like hated this movie and he refused <laughs> to talk about it in later interviews, like once he became famous. Sure. Um, he's okay in it doing his little James Dean impression thing. He's not yet Steve McQueen. Like his persona is not here. Which is really interesting, especially because the character that he's playing, like Steve, that teen also has his own character arc of becoming like being able to stand up. It's not like he doesn't have a spine, but being more confident in himself. He becomes a leader, right? Like at the start of the movie, he's this guy who like gets into street races and uses corny lines to pick up girls and take them to lover's lane. And he's also like very just kind of wishy-washy about stuff because he's trying to like not have a firm like opinion on things or not like put himself out there too much. He's bad at communicating. Right. Like when they bring the farmer to the dock he's like yeah we ran into this guy and the doc's like you ran into him and gene's like no he came out to the car yeah we happened upon him yes i will say though that um the one problem with steve mcqueen in this movie is his face just looks too much like a guy who has seen some stuff because he has seen some stuff yeah to be playing the like sort of shallow small town lad that he's playing here yes but when steve sees the doc attacked Mm. i believe it yeah yeah he does a very believable performance of being like horrified by what he has just seen and part of that is the age in his face yeah he um mcqueen does a good job with the idea that like steve's a little bit shell-shocked after that um which is cool because that moment is very powerful Mm -hmm. when the doc gets attacked and honestly my one complaint about the blob is that any other time that someone's attacked it's kind of like a blip and they're gone yeah i wanted more like what we see with the doc yeah the blob manages to kill about four people directly on screen before the attack on the theater but there are so many teen friends in this movie that I really wish it had gotten to some of them as well, instead of so many like expendable randos. Cause like the people who actually get killed on screen are the old man who is just, you know, the old man, there's the doc, his nurse. And then there's like a mechanic Mechanic. at like a car garage who isn't connected to any of the rest of the story or any of the other characters. And I feel like, um, the horror decreased, because of that um because other than the doc the deaths aren't tied to anyone the heroes care about um you know we mentioned that even the dog gets spared like what if one of their friends got got what if one of their parents got got that would have been more powerful than you know i don't think anyone even notices that mechanic is dead no Um, not yet There is a line that the blob has killed 40 to 50 people. Yeah. Well, it's assumed that like not everyone got out of the theater alive. I thought it was very interesting. This is kind of going back to the fact that people had backgrounds. Mm -hmm. But I thought it was very interesting that war 
and adults' lives is directly spoken to as impacting how they interact with teens. Right. Um, because that's something I don't often think about. Like these parents, like whether it was World War II, depending on their age, um, the Korean War, were also in Vietnam right now. Vietnam started in 1955. Sure. It took a while for the U.S. to get to Vietnam, though. It was originally like the French's That's fair, but there's still war around, and I don't really think of it as being something in the late 50s. It's something where, like, it's this unspoken thing about any movie that you watch from, like, you know, the late 40s to the late 50s, where you have to think to yourself, like, assume most of the male characters in this movie fought in a war. Yeah. Right? And for this movie to specifically call it out was really interesting to me because normally that doesn't happen kind of related to that is you know we see how that impacts how the police officers are interacting with the teens and it's really interesting to me that like this movie characterizes that relationship or that clash between youth and authority as like a misunderstanding rather than authority whether it's police the government, the school administration is being inherently untrustworthy. Right. Yeah. And like, you know, the arc that all the characters have is them coming together to understand one another and realize that like, you know, everybody's. Everybody's just people. Right. I do like, (laughs) um, you know, like Jane's dad is the principal, for instance, and he has a very like typical principal kind of personality for being in a movie. Um, And it's not really remarked on. But I I say he has a character arc because at the end of the movie, they have to go get CO2 extinguishers from his school and he's forgotten his keys like he doesn't have them on him. So he picks up a rock and throws it through the window so he can break in. Yeah. And the movie like puts emphasis on this, too. That's why it feels like this is a character arc. It's like, oh, he's like the teens, too. Right. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. He likes to vandalize. There's a lot about this movie that's charming that I think comes from the fact that it was made outside of the system. Yeah. Like, you know, as if they didn't realize that they were supposed to do certain things. Um, The script that we're talking about here, it really feels like Kate Phillips went to a lot of effort to flesh everything out and really make this a good story with, like, interesting characters. It doesn't have that, like... Yeah, I guess I'll... uh, Put in a mad scientist here and... Yeah, I'll knock this out by the afternoon. Roger says we have to start shooting on Saturday and it's (laughs) Friday at 5 p.m. So yeah, I'll knock this thing out. Like it doesn't have that feeling. Yeah. Right? Um, And same with like the shooting, the way that there's so many different shots and they're going all over the place. It's like they don't know that it's cheaper to just like plunk the camera down in one spot and never move it. (laughs) Yeah. I am really curious about Irvin Yeworth because he manages the photography with the blob fairly well. I know that that's like a big part of the cinematographer's job, but like Irvin's kind of directing all of it. That's why he's the director. Duh, Sarah. Um, But yeah, he manages to do that. He takes the time for the multiple shots. He's only ever done like, I'll say like talking movies <laughs> where it's not like a, there's a special effect kind of situation sure. going on. Um, so I'm really just curious, like, did he just see this as an opportunity to kind of like go ham? 
it just has that feeling that you sometimes see in indie productions of really clever solutions to problems because they don't have money. Yeah. And clever solutions to things because nobody's told them that like you aren't supposed to do this or that, Oh, there's a better like standard solution. Like, you know, it seems like it never occurred to these people to not shoot at night. Yeah. Which like, you you know, you're not really supposed to do like we're in 1958 um, night shooting technology still is really bad, Mm -hmm. but instead they shoot at night. And sometimes that means that, you know, we can't see much beyond what's lit by the onset lights that they've got, uh, that they've probably got hooked up to a generator or something. You know, it's like nobody told them about day for night, basically, right? Um, so between, you know, scenes like Steve getting pulled into the police office and his parents have to come get him and like what's going on, like that gives it this kind of like rebel without a cause feel. And then the stuff with like the teens driving around the town at night and we're really shooting in a real town and really shooting at night also gives it like an American graffiti vibe as well. Like just if, you know, those movies were monster movies. When did American graffiti come out? Uh, Like, you know, 15 years after this. Okay. Yeah. Rebel Without a Cause came out in 1955. So it's a very direct, I think, inspiration. You can can see the inspiration from Rebel Without a Cause for sure. I bring up American Graffiti because it came out in the 70s as like a nostalgia movie for the 50s to say that like, you know, a lot of the things that were innovative about American Graffiti are kind of like in this movie, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, Thematically, the movie is very strong on its like you know teens versus authority theming there has been talk over the years trying to like pin a broader allegory to the blob no it's it's just a common enemy that we all have to come against it's there's nothing russian about it especially because if it was russian like why would we send it up to the Arctic? The Russians can get to the Arctic. But Sarah, it's a big red monster. It's red because of blood, that, guys. You know, Fuck. people are... The, Not everything the, is about Russia. The, the characters are trying to warn people about, and no one will listen about the dangers of this red monster. Yeah, there's been a lot of like, oh, it's a Cold War allegory no. thing. And yeah, the um, the writers and producers of the movie, like 20 years later, when like, you know, people's theses started coming out... Uh, were like, no, you're you're reading way too much into this. No, if anything, it's more about um, not not a commentary, but I would almost say that this is like a juvenile delinquent horror movie. Right, and it, it's more about juvenile delinquency than it is about the Cold War. Yeah, and you know, not every '50s horror movie or monster movie needs to be about the cold war but i just wanted to bring it up because it is a very common interpretation that's fair um but i think it is important to remember when you watch this movie and you see this movie about like how the the kids are all right really you know that's the 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 theme of the movie is the kids are all right to remember that this is a movie made by like essentially a church group yeah right like wild this is a movie telling you know a community hey like Parents are okay. They're not inherently bad. Kids like come together, talk to one another. Yeah. And like, it's all just a misunderstanding. Yeah. Like Bert needs to go talk to a psychologist. 
and and maybe go on like work leave. Mm. But otherwise, like everyone else, you know, we should be fine here. Yeah. And, you know, showing that um, like, OK, there's one really cool part in this movie, very subtle, where, you know, the teens are shown to be rowdy and they do parties and they do street racing and whatever. But like <laughs> they're they're good kids at yeah. the end of the day. And the adults are not shown to be paragons of moral virtue where it's like, oh, the only people who get into trouble are teenagers because there's a part of the movie where they're going around town trying to warn people about the blob and they go to a house and like there's some adults having a dinner party and you can tell they're adults because they're all wearing suits and the adults are drunk out of their minds and they're like laughing at the teens and like oh it's paul revere come to warn us about the british and like just showing like yeah like the adults suck you know yeah because they don't take us seriously yeah because they think we're kids and and you know the idea of being kind of like rowdy party goers who don't take anything seriously is not inherent to teendom yes you know exclusive to teendom yeah for me personally and this has been true since i was a kid the weakest element of this movie is the ending the co2 thing is clever uh but i always have found it like a little bit unsatisfying and anticlimactic that the movie just kind of ends with like and then we called the army and it they they took it to the arctic the end sure i don't know if i fully agree but i will say that at the end is when we get hardly any shots of the blob. It's just suddenly frozen. And even that is just a painted picture. Like it needed to have more special effects shots in order to really feel that climax. So I will say that it is a weak climax because of that. Yeah. You just get the feeling like it's all happening off screen. No, really it's happening over there. Yeah. It it makes it a little bit unsatisfying. Right. Um, yeah, we could totally. have spent like 20 grand to make this work, guys. Like we were way under budget. Yeah. You know, to have a little bit of a more visually. Oof. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, but hey, now that global warming has fucked the planet, maybe it's time for like a legacy blob sequel. You know, one of those uh, it's a sequel to the original movie uh, kind of things that have been really like popular in horror movies lately. Uh, I mean, I feel like we'd have to watch the other Blob movies in order to really understand, like, the Blob mythos and the cinematic universe that's been created here. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. So let's move on to ranking. Okay. So I just have a spot picked out. Oh, no. So do I. Oh, no. (laughs) So my first starting point Uh was the premiere teen movie which was I was a teenage werewolf. Right. That's episode 213 if you want to get more context around why teens. And that's ranked at number 58. And as a teen horror movie, The Blob is much better than I was a teen werewolf because it, even just on like the basic level of better balancing the integration of horror and teens. Yeah, Blob is better. Yeah. So then my next touchstone was going to be X the Unknown. Uh, We've mentioned it throughout the episode. It's currently ranked at number 31. That's a pretty good spot. I wasn't sure because like looking between 31 to 58, um, we have some pretty notable things like Cabin of Caligari, Crew to Edge The Curse of Frankenstein as like a contemporary comparison. Mm -hmm. But I thought, no, you know what? Like, 
just looking at the way that they handled the blobness, the horror of a blob, I feel like the blob literally attacks people. X the unknown people just happen to get killed, right? right? Due to like radiation. So felt it was better than X the unknown. Right above that is the brain eaters last week's movie. That movie's really good, but it's not very well known. The blob is iconic. And I think that iconicness, iconicity, or any of these words, um, compares really well with Invasion of the Body Snatchers and Fiend Without a Face at 28 and 29, respectively. I feel like Fiend Without a Face is more of a horror movie than The Blob, so my spot was to just go in below Fiend Without a Face and above The Brain Eaters. Okay, interesting. Um, I ended up lower than you. Okay. Um, I... I do see what you're saying about the blob being better than X the Unknown. I think what threw me was like that X the Unknown is above stuff like Nosferatu and Creature from the Black Lagoon and, uh, you know, Night of the Hunter and Phantom of the Opera and stuff like that. Because I sort of started looking down from X the Unknown and I was thinking like these movies are all better than the blob. And so what happened to me was I hit um, Black Cat Mansion at 50 and I was like the blob is better than Black Cat Mansion and it's better than El Vampiro and it's better than, you know, El Ataud del Vampiro and House of Wax and stuff. So the spot I actually picked was number 50 below Screaming Skull above Black Cat Mansion, which means that there is a 20 movie gap between our two spots. That makes it easy to find the midpoint, which is number 40, It, the Terror from Beyond Space. So here we have like proto alien Mm -hmm. and then right above that we have like curse of frankenstein like this movie that reinvigorated the gothic horror genre and also its use of color yes yes absolutely so in directly comparing these what do we kind of like think how do we feel about these three movies in conversation with each other well i will say both curse of frankenstein and the blob are using color to its full potential They're really going for it. I would even argue that the blob maybe goes for it more because of the colored edge lighting and managing to create that dark claustrophobic feeling with the black backdrop Sure. um, because they, they aren't doing the shadowy thing. It, the terror from beyond space also has a very claustrophobic feeling. I would say it's better at maintaining that feeling of like tension than the blob. Yes. So this is really tough. I think it has the better climax. Uh, it, the terror from beyond space. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, yes. Has the better climax because it keeps that tension throughout um, and really ramps it up. Although I will say the blob does like a pretty good job of bringing you to a point where it's like, how the hell is Steve and Jane going to get out of this? Yeah. Like where it really feels like, are they going to die? <laughs> Um, It doesn't quite have the balls of the brain eaters, right? It was the brain eaters where the lead characters die. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But those were adults, Ben. Sure. These are teens. Very true. Plus Danny, the six-year-old with the poor speech impediments. Yes. Poor Danny can't die. Yeah. Um, I love when he, like, shoots his toy gun at the blob. And then runs out of quote-unquote bullets and then throws his gun. Yes. He's learned well. Yes. (laughs) What about the blob below it and above Mad Love? Love it. Okay. Then entering the list at the new number 41 is The Blob from 1958, 
directed by Irvin Yeworth Jr. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, ScreamScenePodcast.com. There you can find links to the other episodes we have mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line there. You can email us at ScreamScenePodcast at gmail.com or reach us over Twitter at underscore ScreamScene. ScreamScene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can subscribe to the show using our RSS feed, and you can help the show out by leaving a rating or a review on the podcasting app of your choice. You can also tell your friends about the show. Word of mouth is the best way for us to grow our audience. So sharing the show on social media, around the water cooler, however you want to do that, we really appreciate it. We also really appreciate it if you can lend us some financial aid over at patreon.com slash scream scene podcast where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month your patronage helps pay for our hosting fees it helps us with you know taking the time out of our days to research these movies watch them record the show um do the show the way that we want it to be done and patrons at the five and ten dollar level get access to regular bonus content and all patrons get to vote in the monthly horror adjacent bonus episode polls uh the latest of which saw calling dr death win Uh, that's not technically accurate because it was a tie and we we chose based on a dice roll fair but uh if you want to make sure that the next poll has a much more decisive victory (laughs) sign up for patreon.com slash scream scene podcast so that you can decide our fates We started the show off by saying thank you to our listeners, our beloved creatures of the night for helping us reach episode 250. And to close out the show, I want to give another thank you to our patrons of the night because your financial support is very, very much appreciated. So Ben, what are we watching next week? No, you said, you said. Yes. So next week we are watching the movie that was originally the A picture to the blob, but got demoted to B picture. It is the goofily titled but apparently quite good i married a monster from outer space cool it's kind of in line with um i walked with a zombie i married an axe murderer that kind of title exactly perfect we will see you then creatures of the night bye bye bye